Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I am the other one, Neil Bolt. And this week, we're discussing the emergent game design of Prey, which remains a standout four years after its release, as a masterclass example of environmental fluidity and delivers a largely unparalleled approach to player choice. And fair warning, we'll be discussing all manner of spoilers for the game. In Prey, the player will explore the halls of the mysterious Talos-1 space station as engineer Morgan Yu, who's awoken to a full-scale station infestation by an alien organism known as the Typhon. Now it's up to Morgan to decide the station's fate, as well as his own before the Typhon threat reaches Earth. But it isn't just Neil and I uncovering the secrets of Talos-1, as we've once again recruited the always-welcome insight of game designer and bloodydisgusting.com contributor Aaron Bame. So without further ado, Aaron, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. No problem. We uh, enjoyed your insight into uh, Bloodborne last time. And if anything, I think it gave Neil and I both more of an appreciation for that game. Not that we didn't enjoy it previously, but I think just in getting to chat with somebody like yourself that's able to uh, really sort of draw out a lot of elements that maybe are not as apparent to people like Neil and I, who maybe were not as in love with the game, but you really kind of helped solidify why that's such a standout game. So I can't wait to kind of get to the bottom of uh, Prey, a game that, for me at least, I did not love right out the gate, but now in prep for this, this is probably my fourth time playing through it. Uh, It's a game that I love more and more every time I come back to it. So I'm excited to kind of uh, pick your brain about why this game is such a standout for you and uh, get Neil's experience with it as well. Um, But with Prey, it feels like the conversation and sort of full understanding around the game was very late to it when it was actually released, right? It kind of only feels like recently the game has been getting the proper sort of uh, love and praise that it maybe should have gotten right out of the gate. Uh, and I think things like uh, the No Clip documentary that highlighted it was really, really great at sort of unearthing a lot of elements of the design that I think a lot of people were uh, overlooking at the time. But Let's start with you, Aaron, with your history uh, with Immersive Sims. Yeah, I I think this is a genre that I just, I really adore. I think it's, as as somebody who's really interested in game design, um, you know, as a, as a game designer, um, it is, it's, it's such a, like a textbook example of the, of like the principles that I love. Like, I really love really intricate level design, things that um, force you to, get to know the environment and to double back on things or have multiple pathways and and i remember going back to deus ex like when that came out and i was just you know for the first time building a pc that could actually play games (laughs) um deus ex really grabbed me and i was really kind of stunned by the amount of freedom and and really interesting storytelling opportunities that that type of game had and i always kind of chased that but never really found a lot of things like that the immersive sim genre isn't isn't one that has always had mainstream success uh, you know you have your you have your um, deus exes and your thieves and your um you know to a lesser extent like bioshock has a lot of immersive sim lineage to it while it may not be quite as as free as some of the earlier games mm-hmm. um but when i got to pray i I, I like realized this is this is what I really loved about the genre. Mm-hmm. How about you, Neil? What was sort of your first exposure to uh, immersive sims? Yeah, I experienced them back in the day on PC as well, but um, I didn't really get into them properly. I think until Deus Ex uh, Human Revolution, um, when it, it, it was an early PS Plus game, and I ended up playing through it, and I just loved that it was 
basically almost forcing you to take in every aspect of the environment and what you could do and I just loved the flexibility and freedom of it you know it it was the game that really did it for me and that was just wow I this is a kind of game I like it was around the same time like you know I was back into turn-based strategy again because of XCOM the revival as well and it's just like I don't know it was the first time really consoles got that PC experience that I grew up with and it being easier for me now to sort of get on with that and I was like oh yeah this is great love it love it love it love it I got more and more of that um, obviously I played Dishonored and you know that had elements of it but I think I played that just before that and didn't really click at first and same with Dishonored too but Prey I um, opted to do the review for PlayStation Universe back in the day and just because I thought I'd take it on and I was blown away by it 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 just you know I got a real thing for space station stuff and like it you know we've said this before with Alien Isolation just having this feeling of being somewhere like that you know that it's just magical and it you know we'll we'll get into it I'm sure but you know Talos 1 is just you know, it's a centerpiece of this game it, and it is just a place there's no doubt about it you know it's not a st- series of corridors stitched together it's you know they, as you've seen in the uh, no-clip documentary that, you know, they had architects for the, that very aspect of it that, that to make an actual living breathing place with a real identity of why it looks the way it does and why it is the way it is and yeah, it was just mind-blowing. And it's one of those things you just sort of dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And more than any of Arcane's games, and I, you know, Dishonored 2, definitely this, uh, three of my favourite games ever, you know, in the, you know, the pantheon of games, and all for different reasons. But this just felt like the most, like, like Aaron said, like it really did those things that I would want from an immersive sim. You know, all the way down to it. You know, it's less a sandbox. It's more of a case of no, no, no. You just it feels like an RPG in a way those games don't. Yeah, I came to uh, Immersive Sims first with Deus Ex much later than when it was actually released. But it was at this sort of pivotal time where I was kind of wandering the shelves of uh, Circuit City, uh, rest in peace to them. Where it was kind of like this, just wandering the shelves and grabbing whatever kind of stood out to me because I wasn't as uh, literate in terms of like knowledge base wise in terms of like PC games and stuff like that I didn't have an older brother to like hand me down stuff so I was like oh this kind of looks cool and just grabbing something that was at that time when uh, I came to it it was like on the bargain shelf or something like that (laughs) and so immediately was just blown away by the reality that there's multiple paths and there's a freedom to how you approach everything and when you talk about it now it sounds so simplistic but in that particular time when I came to the game and when I was probably a teenager, it was the thing where so many games advertised that they would uh, respect player choice or give players a certain amount of uh, freedom to do things. But then a majority of the time it ended up being like, well, you can go the stealth route or the loud route. And that a lot of the time was the extent to that freedom in a lot of the types of games that I was playing and whatnot. And Deus Ex was the first one that I came to where it felt like there were three or four viable paths that you could approach not just one scenario or engagement or objective, but all of them, the entire game almost. It felt like you had a true say in how you were going to approach things. Um, And that's something that 
Of course, I think Prey 2017 does such a fantastic job of evolving on and whatnot. But I, before we jump into that, I'm curious, do either of you have experience with uh, the original Prey from 2006? Briefly. Yeah, briefly. Yeah. I, I not, did not care for it, to be honest. So I, yeah. I was not one of those up in arms about this game taking its name. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I think that it's just funny to think back to where Prey started to where we ended up. Mm. And it's just two completely different directions, obviously, in terms of the uh, direction that they went in those projects and whatnot. One is very much this sci-fi linear first-person shooter, and the other is something that expands on the concept of sci-fi again, but in a way that feels true to kind of the roots that we've all been talking about. And really, if anything, it feels like a spiritual successor to the likes of like System Shock, right? Something like that, far more than something like Bioshock, which personally, like going into Prey 2017, the reason it didn't click with me is that I think at the time it was probably very heavily advertised as being similar to uh, Bioshock or something Mm -hmm. to that extent, or maybe that was just my uh, perception of it and whatnot. So when they didn't have a lot of hand-holding, when it didn't have a much more, um, let's say, milestone-heavy sort of narrative, right? It's it's very seldom that you're getting these big story beats in play. And for those types of uh, elements were very off-putting to me initially because my expectations were not in line with what the reality of the project was. Um, And I think that it's something that, again, we talked about, the idea that the conversation surrounding Prey was so late in terms of like when it was actually released and that people were finally able to really explore this world that feels very vibrant and lived in, uh, as we've all said. But I guess for you, Aaron, given sort of the studio and individuals that were involved in this and their sort of uh, background in crafting immersive sims and whatnot, what were sort of your expectations for Prey? Um, I went in um, liking Dishonored a bit. Mm. Like, I played it, um, but for some reason I just kind of bounced off of it. Mm. And sometimes I tend to do that with with fantasy or with historical Mm. type settings. Um, So when I saw that they were doing a sci-fi thing and it looked, you know, I remember seeing that trailer at E3 or whatever, and it I was immediately captured by it and, you know, started kind of putting it after I just saw the trailer and then started putting it together that it was the Dishonored people. And I was like, oh, this is the perfect application of of that design ethos and uh, mixing it with a, a setting and a genre that I really love. Um, yeah, and I... I remember initially getting the demo of it when it came out, and for whatever reason, I don't know if something else was coming out at the same time, but I just kind of bounced off of it like a lot of people did. Mm. Like, I played the demo, and I think I found it more challenging. I think it was pretty challenging, um, the demo, because the beginning of the game is pretty pretty tough until you start getting your footing and getting powers um and the demo just kind of put me off a little bit and it wasn't until the game went on sale for like you know 20 bucks or whatever that i was like sure i'll i'll give this another shot and was just that time was just immediately grabbed and sucked in yeah i remember that the demo that came out i think it was like you get 30 minutes or something to run around the environment or an hour or something like that and i in retrospect now having played the game several times through i can't think of a worse way to really allow Prey to show the player what it's truly capable of. Because yeah. right, it's very much that beginning segment that is literally taken right from the core game and to, or the final product and whatnot, where it's very much like the scene where you're like breaking through the matrix, essentially, right? Because you play this researcher, you're going through this routine, basically, which is like a series of tests, and then the Typhon outbreak occurs. 
And then you basically get knocked out and you start reliving this kind of like Groundhog's Day thing where you wake up again, you go through the same paces, but something's off, right? And you realize like something is seriously wrong in this station. And while that's a very cool moment and that's a moment that stands out, the sort of like flying of the coop, if you will, uh, from your uh, containment and realizing, oh, there's actually, you're not on Earth, you're in this space station and there's this containment breach that you have to now grapple with. At the same time, though, the game really is best when the player is left to fully explore and approach things in a way that they f- seem to find to be best suited for their specific scenario. Whereas leading with a more linear section and it being such a small slice, it doesn't do a great job in terms of like displaying the true and what I find to be largely still unparalleled freedom in how you're going to approach the objectives and all these different things and traversal of the environments and whatnot. Um, but I mean, that opening moment, I think, is so key. And that no clip documentary does a great job of highlighting the importance of that in relation to the rest of the game. When yeah. you have the rest of the game and it is this unparalleled amount of freedom, you really do have to have that moment that is not necessarily on the tracks, but it does have to be the most linear part of the game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that from a store like that's it's a really tricky line to walk because from a story standpoint that is such a grabbing thing and you really do want to kind of show that off because that's such a a great moment as you sort of see the like especially you know now that we we all know the ending playing it again and, and sort of realizing what the the testing was at the very beginning mm-hmm. um is, is so much richer of an experience but that's such an all-time like cool story moment opening um but yeah like you said it, it doesn't really give you a full example of the type of gameplay that you're gonna get so it's a really hard game to try and sell like it, i don't know how i would try and make a demo yeah. that. i would just have them <laughs> play that out and then, and then be like okay now you're transported like an hour into the game where you have a little bit more um, yeah but yeah it, it's easy to see why i bounced off that initially yeah i will say here's where i differ i think is in playing that demo was the reason i signed up to do the review because i was fascinated that they seemingly gave so much away in that you know you had the double reveal in that you know straight away you had the you're not really doing this thing, you know, you're not really in a normal earthbound world like that. And then you're actually in some testing facility. And then it's that you're, um, you know, in space. It's like, they put both these things in the demo. It's like, it's odd. It just feels odd. There must be more to this. You know, there must be something. And there really is. And I think that was a really key hook for me when I played the game itself is that I wanted to know more. I wanted to know why are we here? Why is this happening? Why is that? I mean, it's one of those where you pick up stuff differently each time, you know, with hindsight, you know, and go, ah, yeah, Christ, if I'd been thinking clean and clearer on this, I I could have pieced this together. Like, um, before you go into the guts section early on, there's a, a conversation you can find uh, where they're talking about the ending of the game, you know, about what they're doing. You know, it's like, and it's just the whole process. And it's just like, and I love the other, that conversation ends with like, no, no, we should put our research into something that more that actually matters and is more important. It's like, it's just such a sneaky little dis- misdirector. It's like, but I love that. It's just, just not, I've discovered that on what this is about the seventh time. I think now I've gone through that game. And yeah, it's just delightful to know that I can still pick these little things up from it. 
Well, let's talk about sort of digging a little deeper into the emerging gameplay and whatnot, mm. and how we all, I'm sure, you know, Neil said he's played it seven times, or played through it seven times. I'm on my fourth playthrough. Aaron, I'm sure you've played through it uh, almost at least a handful of times, but it seems to be that every time you approach this game, it gives you multiple paths that, again, it differs from just being like, oh, this will be a stealth build. This will be a, a gun build, right? It's a lot deeper than that and whatnot. I guess for you, Aaron, how does it differ and how does it maybe build upon a lot of the staples of immersion gameplay and player choice that we're so familiar with, but do it in a way that feels fresh, that feels like it is evolving on this sort of concept that most games might see that and try to like make it more novel. Whereas with this, it really is core to the experience and being unprecedented in the amount of choices that you have that differ every single playthrough. I think there's a really smart amount of marriage between the the powers that you have and the level design. Like, you know, sometimes when you have a lot of power options, like a lot of like branching paths that you are trying to spend your upgrade resources on, um, sometimes you get stuck with something where it's like, oh, I went down this path and now I'm in the section where this path is completely unsatisfying. You know, if I wanted to do like a strength build or something like that, and then I get in somewhere and now that strength is completely useless. I feel like every place in Prey you can go has like, it's like, oh, here's the place I can go through if I have the strength to lift these boxes out of the way. And here's the place I can go to if I had the repair to fix this door. Here's the place I can go to if I use the mimic powers and I can make a coffee cup go through (laughs) a window. Um, And I think that that marriage of, of like, Thinking of thinking of the powers as they're designing the level, um, while still managing to make it be a completely lived-in and believable space, um, makes it so so unique and so successful. It feels like there are again like four or five options to approaching not only combat scenarios but just how to get into a room. Right? I mean, granted. There's definitely going to be a fair amount of places where it's like, oh, well, here's a vent that you didn't see, so you can sneak in through a vent. But it's never just that as an alternative option, right? Like you said, you can use the mimic powers. You can use the strength build. You could, if it's somewhere high up and, like, the stairs got destroyed, you can use the glue cannon and make your own, Mm -hmm. basically, stairway again and things like that. And it's just a fantastic uh, approach and marriage, like you said, to uh, gameplay and level design. Yeah, I had a. I actually had a really perfect example of that while I was just replaying. Like, I just started a new game of it, and um, I was trying to make it back to Morgan's main office, and uh, and I was I couldn't get past this this phantom that was there because I just you know it's it's pretty early in the game and I wasn't wasn't leveled for it, and um, I was I I just ended up taking a different turn and then like climbed across some weird piece of art oh, that yeah. was like suspended you know <laughs> yep. above and then just went in the back door or like <laughs> through the window of the office and um, it's moments like that that it gives you, it it makes you feel like you're breaking the game, yeah. yes. but. But uh, you, it's like you're sitting there and you're like, ha ha they didn't think I would do this. But you know they absolutely 100% put that right there and they're like, somebody's going to, this is the, this will be the way someone does this. And I think that um, that feeling that you get when you think you've outsmarted the game, but they actually have put that there exactly for you to do that is is so satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that you can combine these strategies as well, uh, on my current playthrough, I had one of those sort of locked room situations where maybe you could angle it right and do a bounce off the wall back to the switch thing but with the dark gun you know the phone dark gun but I just picked up the, the the morphing ability at that point and 
but I couldn't quite reach the window as the shape I was. I'd have to be small enough to fit through, but tall enough to actually get in. And then I was like, well, how do I do that? And I was like, the glue gun, the glue cannon. And just make a couple of platforms, sit up on it, then morph, then you're through the gap. Brilliant. Little things like that. It just, without being... I mean, it was nothing I needed to do. It was not like it was part of the main game. It's just like, I wonder if I could get in that. It feeds curiosity in such a wonderful way. And I think the new game plus really adds to that as well, where you can sort of start stockpiling abilities and really flesh out and try different things. And it, it becomes really exciting. I found that with Dishonored 2 as well, where you just accumulate more and more abilities and have all these new strategies to try and it feels fresh again uh, you get to do things you never I never used the morph stuff for the first time I went through Prey at all you know, I, ne- I never got into it so I think it was about the third or fourth playthrough I ever bothered and it was just like wow okay yeah, this is cool now I can try accessing these places early by doing this this and this and by then you're so used to everything you know, about how the game works and where you can sort of bend and break the rules they set, that it, it just becomes a delight to sort of, you know, try something out. Instead of you're not really forging forward to finish the story, you're trying to find everything you can within this world before you reach that end. You, know, you want to find all these little side stories, see if you can find something valuable, or you know, maybe the code to a door you couldn't get into before or whatever. You know, it's. Yeah, it's the best way to handle things. It's it's funny that you say that about how you didn't um, take the morph powers because I didn't take any any Typhon powers the first time oh. I played through. Um, I kind of fell for that little like narrative hook of where that the, somebody was like, "Oh, don't take Typhon powers; the the turrets will turn on yeah. you." And I was like, "Well, <laughs> yeah. I don't want that to happen." So um, I just I just kind of. Um, use the skills that were all like all the the quote-unquote human-based powers um and then it wasn't until uh, moon crash came out that i started you know and they forced you into these different builds that i was like what was i thinking (laughs) (laughs) to go back to pray and and really try all the other cool stuff um because yeah the first time um especially since the the way they threatened was the turrets i was like well half my strategy is hacking turrets picking them up and just like dropping them in a in a combat zone and that's how I take care of my enemies yeah I remember getting to that point uh, where I sort of tipped the balance too much and I knew I was coming up to a bit that I'd need the turrets and I was like oh fuck you know? it's like I've, done, I've messed, my, messed my chances up you know when you have to do the uh, siege quite late on you know with the people in that area and I realised I'd yeah, t- done that tipped it too far in, in that way and I was like oh, but then I had to have this whole new strategy for that section. I, I couldn't rely on the safe old thing I'd done the last few times. So again, fresh stuff, fresh ways of doing things. It's like, I just love that about it so much. It just, it changes everything every time you make a slightly different decision to the last time you played. Yeah, it's it, to me, sometimes it's almost like... Um... Like in Hitman, where mm. the the fun of it is not is, is sometimes the fun of it is like being like okay, this is my scenario. I'm going to plan exactly how I'm going to get yeah. through this with the skills I have. And then the actual fun of it is when you execute that plan, it goes completely wrong, and you have to improvise on <laughs> yeah. the spot. Yeah. And that's what and Prey gives you the tools to excel at that. I mean, Hitman is a great example because you know that's another you know, technically an immersive sim that I 
adore as the series, you know, and it, it's a whole different ball game of what you get there. But I do again love just games that allow you to fail upward, you know, and work on the fly. Even Metal Gear Solid Five incorporated a bit of this, you know, it, it, just the idea that you could just have a strategy. The game might even adjust for that strategy and offer you new paths to sort of try out rather than letting you just cheese your way to the end of something. It is so refreshing and because it takes care and thought and you know, d- developers understand how players are going to react to games. You know, I think I was just watching that documentary again today and just thinking when you think of all the big games now that get all the plaudits for how well they're looking on the stories they tell, and it's just like they're so it just makes them feel so shallow, you know, by comparison. It's like, which is you know, no problem, you know, that just that's the type of game they are. But I I see like the, the disputes about like the game awards recently, you know, with Deathloop being in there like that. It's just like everyone takes it on story you know and they go oh well th- no because I like the story of this game or this game more than this one it's like it's not the point it's a game first you know it's you know it's supposed to put you into the experience and you know, an immersive sim is really good at doing to me the story that I like in games is the story that I create yes. myself. Like I, I don't necessarily yeah, remember, like especially with the Deathloop. Like I, I've gotten in lots of conversations with friends about whether or not you know we think Deathloop has a good story or has good um, you know story beats in it. And I'm like, to me, the the story isn't necessarily the you know the prescripted plot by plot beats. Yeah. It's it's the things that I did to make it happen and. Um, that's what I remember when I think of games, and that's immersive sims give you the tools to create these own little story beats uh, yourself, and it, it's and it's so much more satisfying to me when that's the way it plays out. Yeah, I think with games, in terms of like the story, the narrative, right? Like, there's good narratives, and then there's narratives that are good at being in service of their gameplay, which is the true star of it, right? And I think that this is definitely an example of that, where it's more about like you had said, Aaron, the story that you're creating is ultimately I found to be more interesting than the story that the game is actually telling. And I think it's perfectly serviceable and we can get into it in a little bit, but I think it's perfectly serviceable for creating this world that you want to explore. It feels very lived in and all these things. But at the end of the day, is it one of my favorite stories in games? Is it why I've played this now four or five times? No, but it's more so it's a perfect structure for me to create my own narrative throughout the gameplay and the sort of different uh, decisions that I make and the different approaches I have and talking about like the game variables and whatnot and just how much depth there is like on the surface they seem very similar in a lot of ways and yet there's a depth there that again works so well in tandem with the environment itself that I mean each room in Talos 1 almost feels like it's designed like a mini dungeon Mm. right how do you get in how do you find out the, uh, like, inevitably there's always like a secret item or there's a stash somewhere or something like that. And then, of course, each room or mini dungeon is kind of telling its own story, whether it be environmental or, of course, various notes and things that you find scattered around. And mm. for me, at least, that's so much more appealing long term than, especially like if I'm going to spend 15, 20 hours playing something like this, it's the idea where it's like, well, ultimately, 
that is going to sustain probably better than if it's just like, okay, this is this another sci-fi opera epic type narrative and whatnot. I find I find narratives that you find in like notes and environment oftentimes way more satisfying Absolutely. than just raw cutscenes and stuff like that. It like immersive sims are all about getting to know the environment and and figuring out, you know, having this very like intimate relationship with the level design and and hide and that makes like hiding lore notes or recordings and that's like reading through emails. It really feels like you're there and your activity, like your actions are what is letting you get story not just like i hit this trigger box and now the movie plays out in front of me like it, it really it really makes you feel more invested when you're when you're just like you know you have to go and read these D character sheets and then figure <laughs> out who this person is yeah. and then go figure out where they are and then go find their code and all that sort of stuff it, it's so much more satisfying than just just watching a little story play out in front yeah. of yeah in this case especially i think uh, uh, in the case of our games game in, in general, they have a rhyme and reason behind everything. And the notes and recordings you're left fit the world. You know, it isn't, you know, like a game where you just find random notes strewn about and you're like, why would anyone have done that? You know, it's like, why would have anyone have had the time to write this, do that? Like, you could question it. I think in Prey, you know, with the email system, it makes total sense you know i definitely picks that up as well where they just have this whole online messaging system between them uh, yeah, that sort of adds to that same sort of idea and so yeah, everything feels right and in some cases rather than having where another game would have a note to sort of describe something that went down the room itself and the way people you know the, the dead are left in it tells the story you know it, you know it, you can see all around the room what's happened to a degree you could read the little audio recording or the email that was left that kind of sort of adds to that detail and leaves you with a bit less wonder but yeah it's nice you can sort of like in real life you could walk into a room and there's something where something has happened and kind of gauge in your own mind what might have happened here you know, that just speaks to me in a, re- a really real way but I it stuns me when I think about it compared to other games is it just it feels like such an actual alive place and I, I know I said this I'm sure I said this before about other games and it's not saying it's any less true it's just here everything you know from the way they've designed each room to make everything this you know it's a corporate building and it has a corporate front and it has everything else in the back that's ugly you know hidden away and it's just fantastic it's all just so consistent and with everything every little detail of it is part of the same world nothing feels like it's cribbing from anything outside of what it is which is the amazing thing about this and Dishonored 2 is though they borrow from Immersive Sims past you know, System Shock and Thief, you know, especially, they don't feel anything like them. You know, they very much feel like Arcane's games. Mm. And, and I don't know, I'm sure you might say the same, Aaron, but as someone who's been there in the, with those old games in the past, it, you, you can say that, that it doesn't feel like they are the same thing. It feels like its own thing that's taken aspects of it and pushed it to a new level 
you know, married a bit more accessibility maybe to it, but still got enough to it where you can go into it again and again and again and find new ways to play it, new ways to experiment and just discover things you never would have seen before. Well, I think a big part of what makes it feel so alive is that unlike maybe like a Bioshock, something like that, that has uh, characters in it that are still alive, but everybody for the most part is like behind uh, a glass wall or a bulletproof wall or something like that. And it seems very inconsequential, but at the end of the day, like the proximity to other alive characters and whatnot, it carries a different weight to it in terms of like, well, there's a quite literally a scene where you decide a, a, a survivor's fate, who you find him in a test chamber or whatnot, you can yeah. free him, but, and you're given information about them, you can choose whether to make the test follow through, which results in their death, or you can uh, free them and whatnot. And just little moments like that, of course, in something like Bioshock, you do have these sort of like good and evil decisions, which is very sort of more black and white and whatnot. But again, like the proximity to other characters and whatnot in Prey is so prevalent throughout the entire game that it does make it feel like you're more in the now rather than exploring what is essentially like a tomb in Bioshock or something like that, largely, right? Of course, there's still a couple of characters that are uh, kicking around there, but it's mostly you're stumbling upon corpses the entire game for a good chunk of it. Um, But also, I think this game does such a fantastic job of, again, like show and not tell with the environments and whatnot, and that's coming back to like the glue cannon introduction right you do get of course a tutorial screen after you pick it up that explains further how it can be used but before that you're shown how it's used right you're in this observation room and you can look down into this sort of uh sound or testing stage and you see a a survivor getting a chased and pursued by a phantom and they use the glue cannon to like make a bridge so they can get up to a high place trying to get away of course we all know that they don't but i think that that is such a important moment because it's showing the player the possibilities of using this piece of equipment and of course that use and uh, utilization can be manipulated to be defensive combat puzzle solving environmental traversal and whatnot but i just love that that brief moment it shows you rather than sort of force feeding a uh, tutorial screen even though you do get a little tutorial message later on but the player already is their brain is already running wild with the possibilities of how this can be used rather than being told explicitly up front how it's going to be used. And I think that that just kind of adds a level of creativity to the game that, again, it, it's paying proper respect or rather it's placing the right emphasis on the multi-utilization of each piece of equipment or tool or weapon and whatnot. And I think that something that took me a while to like really fully uh, come to terms with is like the crossbow uh, nerf gun, basically, mm-hmm. which the first time I played the game, again, like my idea of what this game was was not in line with what it actually was so i was like well this is a stupid like gimmicky item that ties into some feud that people in this office have with one another but on each playthrough now i'm finding new utilizations for it shooting a button distracting a a phantom or a mimic or something to that extent and just little things like that that seem throwaway or they seem kind of like a silly inclusion there's a good amount of depth to it and utilization to it more so than just something along the lines of like, hey, this is a gag item, which in this game, nothing is. Everything has a use for it in more ways than one, which again, on paper, plenty of games have said that, but in practice, again, you you can use this thing to kill an enemy 
loudly or quietly. And I find that that is usually the extent of depth in terms of how you can actually utilize certain things. Um, but I think also just in terms of like letting the environment tell stories, there's one part where you're kind of like walking around an office and you come across what's essentially a snowman that's been made with the glue cannon. And it's called, I think it's called a gluey McGlue face statue, which is very just like anybody that's worked in an office, you could see somebody doing something like yeah. that, that type of humor or whatnot, just to pass the time or especially around the holidays and whatnot. But just a little moment like that. And it's a sticky note. That's got like three or three to five words on it or something. It puts you in that place. And it feels like, again, that people have actually been there. It doesn't just feel like it's not, just like blood scrawl on the wall that says get out or something like that, which is a lot more sort of what you would expect in terms of when people talk about things like environmental storytelling in this, there's personality in everything, Yeah. no matter how much of it there is in a certain instance, it might be minimal. It might be a lot, but I think that gets overlooked a lot in terms of like the personality. It feels like a real person made this rather than somebody that was designing something that was like, well, this needs to go there. It kind of feels like, well, this is the most natural fitting thing for this environment. And that's an element that, again, every time I go back to play this game, I'm exploring more and more. And that is more valuable to me on each replay than finding a new weapons cache or a new yeah. um, a new uh, abilities cache or something like that, which I love. I think one of my favorite early sort of storytelling in terms of the rooms is when you go through psychotropics and... You had that room where they've obviously been researching the mimics, and like mm. every other item has just got a post-it note. And they're saying, <laughs> "Not a mimic, not a mimic, not a mimic, not a mimic." I know that was used in like the the uh, advertising beforehand about the idea of that, but seeing it in a game like that, it just and for the area it was in, and seeing all the other stuff there, it was just like, "Yeah, this makes perfect sense," and just <laughs> it just. You can see how people would have got that paranoid at that point, you know, about what is and isn't a mimic. It's just like, yeah, it, it was a really cool sort of little moment there because you walk into the room and like anything you can sort of like pick up uh, to store in your inventory, including these notes, it's just, you know, it sort of has a little glow to it. So you come to this room that's full of glow and you're like, oh, okay, oh, there's loads of stuff to pick up here. And it's like, they're all fucking posted notes. It's like, it's, it's so brilliant. And then, and then there's that one moment where you're looking around and you're like, "Wait, does that does that not have a post-it note in the room?" Ah, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, jumps right out. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I want to share one more uh, little anecdote about a room in terms of like the recycler room when you uh, discover mm. the recycler grenades, right? And this will kind of segue into talking about items and crafting and weapon management and um, just combat in general in the game. But you have these things called recycler grenades, which basically it. Is, creates a vortex that sucks everything into the proximity of it and then that breaks down all those items into organic materials or various materials that you need to use the crafting system which is such a vital part of this game and is a uh, is probably the best example of emerging gameplay from a combat standpoint or just in terms of like item management standpoint in terms of whatever the player needs you don't have to be reliant on placement it's more about you prioritize what you need based on what you're willing to do are you willing to go attack a group of phantoms just so you can maybe hit them with a recycler grenade or something like that to break them down get certain materials you need and whatnot but uh in terms of you find this room that basically has a massive 
recycler orb in it. And in exploring that room, you come across a little cube that has the organic material and it's got a post-it note on it. And when you read that, it says, oh, this organic material is made from a chunk of my foot when a recycler grenade went off next <laughs> to it. Let this be like a, uh, a warning to you. Just like little little bits of sort of just like humor that feels natural to the world. Because it's kind of like, well, of course that would have happened in this world. You've got recycler grenades and you're breaking down chunks of that. So it's like, of course there were accidents and whatnot, yeah. which again is very much in line with anything that, whether it be movies or games, where it's like, okay, there's it's either a biomedical company or it's a scientific research company and it's like we're trying to the betterment of mankind and yet the reality is always much darker and the human cost that goes behind those things and a game that's able to have little bits of dark humor like that without beating you over the head with it is such a difficult line to uh or balancing act sort of so this game i think is filled with little moments like that and i'm sure we each could think of three or four off the top of our heads but how does the uh how does the crafting system stand out from other immersive sims for you Aaron or even just other games in general that boast having this elaborate crafting system that really puts choice in the player's hand but in Prey it seems to be just so much more yeah I think it's a really elegant crafting system because it's it it's all about using that recycler to break everything down and just sort of you know categorizing it in like whatever like organic or plant or what, all, all these all these different little things that are in those very easy to read symbols that are on the on the machine and stuff like that makes it really so you can kind of figure it out yourself mm. like you know you're like ooh, I need a little bit more metal maybe I can go to this place where I know there's like you know a weight machine or whatever and maybe there's you know you know there's going to be more plant material in the arboretum that sort yeah. of stuff you can really focus on um, using the environmental clues or like the environment itself to figure out where you need to start focusing your your um, your scavenging on when you're looking for something very specific um and I think it's also just um, from like an audiovisual level. Like, there's something so very satisfying about using that mm. recycler. It's just mm. like an absolute pleasure to like <laughs> drop things in there and then like watch the little like zoom yeah, yeah. as it goes through like a tube and then they just like plink 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 out out of the out of the little thing like a almost like a slot machine yeah. or something like that. <laughs> and it's it's so it's just like it's such a little touch that that makes it so um, just so nice to do yeah. you know it's just it's just smooth and feels feels like a really actually um designed product like you would have in a big commercial uh place like Talos, you know like with uh Transtar and Talos and stuff like that it's like this is the kind of product that they would put out into the world so this is why they would want it to be very you know aesthetically pleasing to the customer so um it also works to the player in that same way yeah, it really does um and that is again goes back to that consistency with the world that you know everything is thought about in the context of why Talos One exists to begin with, and it is the it is a corporate vehicle and everything down to you know the things you find there weaponry wise you know actual weapons are very limited you know in terms of they are just either repurposed science equipment or they are security weapons and that's it. Mm. And yeah, the recycling stuff, and the fact that you know they're, they're all around the, the system, is perfect. It makes perfect sense. It's just, I was thinking, I was thinking this time playing through again, that the thing that clicks with me the most is not only in the immersive sim sense, but it reminds me of you know the PS One era of Resident Evil, in that 
the environment feels right and the, the looping around it and it has a story to tell and everything about it sort of fits into the world I mean then yeah you could probably question some of it why is a typewriter your save point blah 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 save point. <laughs> but yeah it still has like this consistent reality going on you know and you're in a, a place that feels connected you know it doesn't feel like corridors and levels it, it feels like no really like underneath the streets of Raccoon City there is this big lab or like you know it, it, it's that sort of thing and you know the, of course I'm going to love that because of Resident Evil 2 but it just works so well that they you know down to every minor detail in, in Talos 1 you know the propaganda posters you know the the advertising, you know, the, which you know, Arcana just brilliant at, you know, in, in world advertising and, you know, the poster art and stuff like that is just exquisite stuff, you know. I mean, I've been looking recently, just thinking about like having a frame, like bit of art stuff from the game or stuff. They don't really have it here, but that was, you know, Arcane's games were the ones I was looking at because Prey and definitely just have some really bloody good art that I just that just doesn't look like game art you know it just, it, you put it up and just be like that's great I could have that in my house no problem and not feel slightly ashamed for being an old man with game art on my wall you know it's like it's like I mean until people go oh what's that from game <laughs> like that yeah. but yeah it's like but still it's just that attention to detail like right down to the like the, the documentary mentions it, doesn't it? it, it you know, there's, you know, the forward-facing business side of Talos One, and then everything behind it is very much, you know, bare bones, what it needs to be, sort of thing. You know, and you gotta love that. It fits. I think the uh, architects that they interviewed basically called it like, what if Google made a space, you know, a space station. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it fits. It absolutely fits. Yeah, I think that that I think again, like we've now we've used the word to death at being immersive, which is kind of like replaced organic for this conversation. <laughs> but it does all feel like it's very natural to that world, and it doesn't feel like it would be a standout or something that I guess for me, like the first time I walked by one of those sort of like propaganda posters or whatnot you don't even do a double take the first few times mm. because it just, it feels just like another part of the world. Like, why yeah. I really pay attention to this? And then of course on a replay or something, you stop and you start admiring these things more and more. And you're right, Neil, I think that's a great way to, to compare it, right? It's something that you could hang in your house and, or your room or whatever. And it doesn't immediately jump out as like, that's video game art, yeah. which I think is the testament to just how in-depth the design was of Talos 1 as a whole, right? Because it doesn't feel like a traditional video game. There's no real video gaming architecture to the game. It feels, again, like the fluidity behind everything, with the exception of certain sections being locked off entirely. A majority of the time, when you come to this wide-open area, whether it be the Arboretum and whatnot, you can get to almost everywhere. Like, in terms of... um, Alex's like mansion that's in the middle of that there's a grav lift that you need that you could take to get up there and it's locked for a good portion of the game that's not the only way in there there's probably two other ways to get in there and you can get in there even earlier there's a section in that area where 
there's I forget what it's called, but it's like the massive Typhon monster. Oh, the Nightmare. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's the Nightmare. It's the one that possesses people. Is that the Nightmare? Gra- it's called like oh, the, the Grave oh, Neighbor the, or something. The Weaver. Yes, the Weaver, I believe. But it's basically possessing survivors to do your its will, basically. Yeah. It makes them zombies, for lack of a better phrase. But you can get in there by finding a code or hacking it. But the hacking level is so high and the code is more difficult to find. This is the first time that I ever maneuvered it so I used the glue cannon to build a bridge to climb <laughs> up on the top of it. And there's a hole in the roof. And then I just killed the, the, the Typhon and whatnot from afar, basically, from shooting down into it. And that was the first time I did that. And that's just such a phenomenal example of every single scenario has three or four paths and you might not even think of it and it might be seem simple but the game is facilitating all of these different approaches in the best yeah. way possible um there's one thing that aaron mentioned in terms of like the recycler grenade and the sound it just sounds satisfying and this is something that i didn't think about until my most recent playthrough and just how the game has these little audio cues that are essentially like synth riffs almost mm. when you pick up rare items or you pick up um a uh, key, like a quest item or something like that. Mm-hmm. It plays that little riff, or if you hit a story milestone beat, it plays that riff. And I love that because it's such a small and fleeting moment, but it further solidifies like empowerment to the player that they're on the right track. They're reinforcing that this thing that you just picked up is a standout from the thousands of other things that you're picking up. And again, it's a fleeting thing, but it places an emphasis on something being valuable or important in a game that there's almost no handholding, right? Again, yeah. coming back to like the narrative and the lack of linearity in the game outside of the opening hour or 45 minutes or whatever, there isn't a lot of handholding outside of, hey, this is where the main story mission is. This is where some side yeah. missions are. But player gets stuff out of the game that they themselves are willing to invest in, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. The more you're willing to experiment, the more rewarding of an experience it's going to be. And those kind of little audio cues, I think, help reinforce that without being very handholdy or sort of having all of these additional like this is what you should be doing this is how you can do this and i think it it reinforces player choice through repetition but it's up to the player to discover that repetition rather than you need to do this to proceed yeah i will also as gonna point out that you know um many people will obviously pick uh the doom 2016 soundtrack as Mm. mick gordon's like Mm-hmm. Magnum Opus, but the work he does on Prey is just fantastic. You know, I think yeah. it doesn't get enough credit, you know, because it's not Doom, but it <laughs> it just yeah, it's phenomenal. Like, it's one of my favorite soundtracks in general. Yeah, so he he deserves so much praise for putting that together and really getting it. Yeah, uh, back to Jay's point about it not handholding. I like that um, the part that they pointed out in the documentary where about how they they don't breadcrumb waypoints. Mm-hmm. Like it's just you always have like the one waypoint in the distance, and it doesn't necessarily tell you how to yeah. get there. Like you could open up your map and start planning out your path, but maybe you don't have the map for that yet. Um, which is so different from something like Bioshock, where you just have that, yeah. you know, that you just kind of it's like okay, I'm going to go down this hall and go down this hall yeah. because uh, I'm not doing it because this seems like the right hall i'm doing it because the arrow above my head is pointing this way can very much feel like a passenger in game sometimes where mm-hmm. you are just basically being directed all the time exactly mm-hmm. and yep. with a game like this you just 
straight away you're like oh how do we do this well i'm not quite exactly sure mm-hmm. like, again an early point here is like uh, going to psychotropic psychotronics whatever it's called is that if you don't find the, the right the scope you know you can't get through but it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you that out now until you get to the gate right. and it's like how do i find it and even on repeat playthroughs i never remember exactly where i have to go to do it and i'm like oh shit that that and so but so you wander around you investigate you find and eventually you you find what you need to find and it's that, that sort of thing that really works for me you know it just really makes it you know you don't feel like you're just going through the motions even after a repeat playthrough you are doing something fresh in itself yeah whilst really just doing the same stuff you did before it's just those little details will get knocked out of your mind for for in a repeat when time has passed between plays it creates a really rewarding relationship between the player mm. and the environment mm. and that is is just so key to me for almost any yeah. game well in terms of the player relationship in the environment uh not to backpedal too much but in terms of like how mick gordon's score comes in and really reinforces that in a big way i think it's I, it's not a surprise that people go towards Doom or Wolfenstein when they think about him in terms of his scores, right? I guess the fan base of those is uh, is uh, monumental compared to something like Prey, but at the same time, obviously, those are louder scores, and I think Prey largely gets overlooked because it is a much more subtle score, yeah. but I think that it's more impactful in matching the beat-to-beat sort of um, range of emotions and experiences that you have in Prey, right? I think that he captures the sort of sense of wonderment of deep space, but then it's immediately followed up by something that instills like the terror and uncertainty of the player's predicament, no matter what part of the station they're at. And I don't think anything is more, uh, no moments are more apparent than that when you leave Talos 1, right? And you're kind of, you're zipping around outside, whether you're sealing a breached hole or you're going into a, uh, a, a area that it had like a pressure breach, basically it had an explosion. You have to get a key card off of a corpse. Yeah. I think that the soundtrack matched with that, but also just like the eeriness of space and how there's some sections all you can hear is either the player grunting because they're getting attacked or the sort of uh, jettisoning sounds from their jetpack to get you around maneuvering. I mean, that is incredibly eerie. And I found myself at times, especially in getting to replay it on um, uh, Xbox Series S and just kind of sitting there and drifting in space and staring at the earth and whatnot and just looking out into the distance and it is very sort of awe-inspiring at times and even from inside talos one right initially when you uh you leave your sort of containment and then you come down that massive spiral staircase and you just stare out the window yeah and just you get lost in space in a way that i had only previously experienced in film in a way that where it's just like you're so you're such you're so small and insignificant within this mm-hmm. world in a way that it captures the environment that only previously film had for me. Yeah, I would say it's no surprise to me that I was very endeared by Damien Chazelle's first man. You know, the story of Neil Armstrong and you know, mm-hmm. going to the moon because it gets a lot of the same things right in terms of just how it makes space travel feel and how dangerous and wonderful it is and again in that case the soundtrack by justin herberts is just so you know key to what that feeling it is it does things that really fit the environment and the atmosphere and it i'm an absolute sucker for a soundtrack that does that for me you know i i love a good soundtrack and it will make me forgive 
the greatest of flaws. But when it's tied to something that is just in itself magical and special, it just you know, it pushes the whole thing up in a whole new level. And yeah, I always I had that same kind of fondness for that film as I do Prey. And almost Ad Astra as well, actually, does it quite well, mm. I find. Or even um, Steven Soderbergh's remake of uh, Solaris. Mm. They just do the same thing to me. It's a great depiction of this emptiness and loneliness of space coupled with you know something else. And while they're all very different things in their own right, they all have this common DNA that really clicks for me. Well, it puts you into space rather than it being just like a set dressing, which you yeah. find a lot of games that take, I guess, you know, not that there are many similarities between this and the original Prey from 2006, but space felt like a set dressing in that, whereas in this, it's more about the atmosphere of space and being mm. lost in that sort of like amazement mm. and wonderment. But, you know, we've talked now for an hour and have barely talked about combat uh, or the enemies for that matter. And, you know, every time I play this game, I'm further taken aback at just how well designed the mimics are. Uh, yeah. in ter- and mm-hmm. it's, you know, I've, I've in talking with people and just reading online, I've seen a lot of people that have found their experience with them to be more negative the more that they play the game because they find that they're sort of one note. Mm-hmm. Whereas I've never been of that opinion because I find that they are the biggest highlight of the game in terms of the enemies. I guess, how do you guys find, uh, or Aaron, how do you find the enemies uh, in Prey overall, whether it be the mimics or the various phantom forms that you'll face? I think those mimics are uh, are just like a, a masterpiece of of, um, of like enemy design because of the fact that like in an immersive sim, it's like often about you, especially when you have a crafting element like this, it's about you investigating the environment and um you know it rewards knowledge of the environment so when you when when you're walking around and maybe you're a little too invested in um just trying to hoover up all the resources you can uh that's when you can get jumped the easiest (laughs) you know you're 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 walking around looking for all the little broken test tubes or whatever Mm -hmm. that you can that you're gonna craft and then suddenly you're just looking at this desk and it just jumps out at you um um and but it also um also rewards you noticing things like it rewards you actively paying attention like like what you said neil about sometimes you just get on autopilot in games um when you're walking around like in this game you get rewarded for actively looking in a room and saying why are there two desk chairs by this desk (laughs) and then you're just like aha and you just you know charge your wrench up and get ready to, (laughs) to to smash it um so i think those mimics are just are just such a great design especially for um you know something that that wants to embrace a bit more of a horror element because uh, while while jump scares can t- be a little bit cheap, there it does add a layer of tension to everything, yeah. um, and I think that's so smart. And as far as the other enemies go, um, they're usually fine to me. I think I think um, I don't know if they're the most like visually interesting. Like I think that they're they're adequate to adequately designed, but but I like the way they do. Um, they move a lot of times like you know the phantoms yeah. tend to kind of um zip around in in ways that are that are hard to perceive and hard to track and they do a good job of um of giving especially in the beginning like a nice like challenge that 
that that you're that's like oh when you see a th- phantom it's like a threat yeah. in the beginning like it's a real thing you have to consider how you're going to get around it or maybe you like look at your inventory you're like i have one recycler charge left is it worth it to use it on this guy um just so i can get through this area or um it, and it kind of has that survival horror thing of of really looking at your resources making you think about how you want to um either sneak around this encounter or um if it's worth it to just plow through and maybe try and make a quick surprise attack that you can take them out before they really get you. Um, so while the phantoms aren't like the most like visually interesting, I like the way that they behave and, um, and, and provide and provide a good challenge for the player. Yeah. Whether it be early in the game or even later in the game, every combat encounter cannot be treated as just another one, right? You yeah. kind of have to, even when you're super powerful and whatnot, if you're going to end up facing two to three potentially phantoms and then there's the more heightened difficulty the like spikier ones or whatnot i don't know uh, what the designation they get other than that is but you can't treat combat encounters like an afterthought because you might be playing you might find yourself in an autopilot mode you're going to get snapped out of that real quick as soon as you encounter two or three of them so from that aspect i do think that they are successful in that regard i guess i was always just hoping that the same attention and creativity that was paid to the mimics and how they were more than just like a head crab type enemy. They would, the phantoms furthermore, maybe would have something along something akin to like being the thing monster, right? They sort of blend in or take the shape of human survivors or something. And then that same thing where you have to be able to pick them out of a crowd and start to notice the different elements of them that maybe make them behave differently, which they essentially are telling on themselves that they're the imposter because, Oh, He's behaving in a way that none of the other survivors are, something like that, Um, which even on a replay, I'm kind of let down a little bit by, but I guess I take less problem with the phantoms and more so with the nightmare monster, which is a big Mm. part of the latter game. And, you know, I don't have a ton of qualms with this game, but that's definitely an element of this game that every time I replay it, I'm just like, this is (laughs) terrifying the first time. And then every subsequent time I encounter it, this is a nuisance that I have to go hide for three minutes or something like that. Or I could fight it. Sure. But it's such a resource sink. And then at the end of the day, it's like, it's going to come back eventually. So is it worth it? And it kind of is just more of a frustrating element that it's like, well, they needed to introduce something new for this final act of the game. And it seems like, they needed to create the super antagonist that kind of doesn't fit or jive with the rest of the uh, the enemies that you face. It almost seems like it's a final boss that hangs around longer than maybe it should have. I do think they ended up um, getting that concept right in yeah. Moon Crash with the mm-hmm. was it the was it the Moon Shark? Is yeah. that what it was called? For some I reason, so. yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I was like, is that right, Moon Shark? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think the Moon Shark really succeeds where the nightmare fails because I think it is. Um, it's it's more like an obstacle that you're trying to get around than an actual combat encounter. Like you know, it's 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 the same kind of idea as the nightmare, where it's this big, um, tough, like you know, uber night uber um, phantom. Mm-hmm. But it but it has in the in that one it has like specific rules and you know the rules to get around it and um, it's it's much more of an environment thing than an actual combat encounter like the 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 nightmare it is like you said the and anything where it's like hide for three minutes that's not exactly the most exciting gameplay like it's the kind of thing where you like just go get in a room and then just go make a sandwich or something (laughs) you know just leave the thing running and you're like okay i guess that was i guess i did it i was replaying it this week obviously in prep for this and i was like i encountered it and i was like oh well i guess 
this is time for me to get up and go get a beer without pausing. So, yeah. <laughs> but in your mentioning um, Moon Crash, if you guys are ready to jump into that, because this was a new experience for me. I had previously had not played Moon Crash. Uh, it was the type of thing where, you know, it's like a, like I'm sure you both can relate to. You get to a certain point in the year and all these big budget games are coming out or maybe more uh, indie darling type stuff is coming out and you kind of just overlook it and it's like how much more can you really add to it when in fact it turns out Moon Crash is probably some of the best DLC that I've played yeah. not only in recent time but in terms of just building off of a core gameplay from the main game mm-hmm. in a way that feels refreshing rather than just like oh this is a new Environment, or here's two new weapons and three new powers type thing, or here's one new super-powered enemy. It feels like a wholly original experience that mm-hmm. recycles mater- uh, variables and elements that are familiar, but it does so in such an ingenious way that presents sort of a new an injection of just adrenaline in terms of like approaching something that's very familiar and yet wholly new. I guess the only place really to start is with sort of our collective histories of roguelikes, because... This takes elements that you're familiar with, and yet it incorporates it into a gameplay style that is very foreign to the core experience of Prey. Um, I guess, what is what are some roguelikes that you've enjoyed in the past, Aaron? And what are uh, what are the elements of roguelikes that make it a standout? I, I often bounce off of roguelikes sometimes. Mm. Like I'll have I'll have occasional ones that'll grab me like I really like but when they grab me they do grab me yeah. <laughs> like I love like I love Slay the Spire um I loved Hades mm-hmm. um Rogue Legacy oh. um is one yes, I mean it's it's not entirely a roguelike but um Darkest Dungeon has some roguelike elements to it um even though it's a little bit more of like you know kind of an XCOM based buildy type you know roster yeah. building type thing it has some roguelike elements to it um but like uh, I, I really love, like, especially when Hades came out, and it was like, oh, people like are learning to tell like narratives mm-hmm. through through the roguelike mechanic, and I think that Moon Crash kind of, you know, Moon Crash did it a little first, you know, yeah. like Moon Crash um, found a way to take that roguelike um, structure and then tell a cohesive narrative story through it. Yeah, absolutely. That was the element that stood out to me, and you know, uh, admittedly, I didn't get to finish Moon Crash and all of it, but from the five or six hours that I think I spent with it, it was so remarkable to me that they were able to tap into the narrative elements that were in Prey, and they were able to likewise tell a story that delivered the same amount of investment in characters and further fleshing out that world in a way that, again, I played Hades before I played Moon Crash, but it further shows that there are narrative potentials that up until those two examples were not being tapped into because it just seemed so... It seemed impossible, right? This idea that you're going to... How are you going to keep the narrative progressing while the player is restarting? But in playing roguelikes, we all know that you're not really truly restarting, but Mm. you're always gaining something moving forwards incrementally, whether it be abilities or equipment and whatnot. Um, But yeah, Moon Crash, I think, just taps into the best parts of Prey, and then it expands on it in a way that you're like, well, this surely had to have been in the original game, but then you realize, of course, it was not. But it just feels like such a natural progression of the best parts of the core game. Yeah. And then experimenting with them, but in a way that doesn't feel... You know, it's an experiment, because clearly Arcane was like, hey, we've got this new idea, we should try this with something that's already established, but it doesn't feel like a blatant 
experiment where they're like, oh, we'll throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. It feels very thought out. It feels very methodically constructed in a way that something like, you know, Neil will remember, but I forget what the XCOM, um, it was an XCOM Chimera or something. It was Chimera some sort Squad, of Chimera yeah. Squad. Yeah, Chimera Squad, which was very experimental. And for me, at least, I walked away from that feeling like, well, they were just trying something with this, but I don't know how well they actually succeeded with this. Rather, Mooncrash, it feels much more like the developer fully believed in this and they saw that this was going to be built into something else rather than like, eh, we'll take a gamble and see if this works, if this is compelling, if this builds upon what made Prey such an immersive experience and such an evolution on the immersive sim in a way that we hadn't seen in a while. Yeah, it, it takes the immersive sim into that sort of realm of roguelike and again I really got into that in the years before Prey you know um, Spelunky Spelunky 2 Rogue Legacy are some of my favourites you know in, in terms of that but you know even this year like Returnal you know it, it has a lot of those elements and is very unforgiving you know, in its original incarnation but it works and I, I'm so into it because I don't know, to me, sort of sci-fi horror kind of works really well with this. You know, I don't know why. Mm. I think because of science fiction and the idea of just sort of looping stuff on, repeating stuff over, just makes sense. You know, it's like it's why Returnal works. It's why Deathloop works. Um, and so yeah, there's a lot of that, as as I'm sure Aaron would agree in Deathloop. You know, the, a lot of what Moon Crash has done is the same sort of thing, which is funny because you know, when they talk about it, they say, "Well, no, we did. We were making this game before we even knew about what Moon Crash was doing." You know, like which is nuts because it's like, how did you both stumble on you know the same ideas? You know, <laughs> but yeah, right. it's fantastic that it it still feels like Prey, but right. it's this whole new experience and. Yeah, it's it brings the intimidation back. You know, it's like when you play Prey over and over again, even though you get these fresh experiences out of it, it does lose that intimidating factor, especially with New Game Plus, where you are, yeah, you, know, you are getting more and more powerful and able to do, you know, be more flexible with what you can do. Here, which I believe in the documentary they mentioned about, like you know. Maybe we gave you too many powers in Prey. This is like the solution to that. We cut the powers down into groups and like build, build basically. And yeah, it is what makes it because there's stuff that you just didn't use. And this is where I was saying about like certain powers, you know, you just do not use when you're playing Prey initially. And Mooncrash, I was like, oh, I could do this in Prey I was like and that's the best thing that any sort of DLC or expansion can ask for is to make you rethink what you did in the main game and Mooncrash did that despite being this different game it made me think about how I was playing Prey I think well no I could actually play it this whole different way this brilliant that's, that's amazing yeah I just the thing that is best about Prey Moon Crash for me is 
how it actually really settles settles you in for what Deathloop ends up being. I know they say it's not, they didn't know and all this stuff, but come on. The whole like sort of progression based on like a loop, you know, it's like you can set things up for the next character in the loop to be easier for them by the actions of the last character that went through. And that's great. Uh, that, and that clearly, clearly went into to Deathloop. And it, yeah, it's little touches like that that just really astound me. And just to make something that is just so ridiculously different in terms of the ethos behind it works the same way is remarkable. It's interesting what you said about um, it making it like intimidating or, or like that again, because what it does is in a lot of ways it adds consequence mm. back to the game. Mm. Because like, because like, especially with the, the lineage of it, be of like immersive sims is a very PC heavy thing. A lot of times I think about um, how I quick save a yeah. lot in things like <laughs> in things like prey mm-hmm. because it's like i'm like okay here's a little combat encounter i'm gonna quick save and when i and when i inevitably mess it up i will just do it again <laughs> um but with with the roguelike structure it's like it's like oh no you you died and that character is gone for this run you know what i mean and now you have to um like now how do you adjust your run like your run are you gonna are you just gonna start the whole loop over again are you gonna maybe say okay i'll take the next character and maybe just try and scavenge for something or you know it it really adds consequences in a lot of very interesting ways that um that can be kind of eliminated when you're just playing on a a a normal playthrough of prey and you can just kind of quick load and over and over again and it makes you think about everything you do where like especially with that mechanic of the corruption level going up like the more time you spend in because you like you really want to be spending time to get everything you're looking for, but it, it makes you think about like, well, ooh, am I spending too much time with this first character? Um, should I be saving it for another character? And, and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, the more interesting decisions you can make the player uh, make while they're while they're playing through, the the more rewarding yeah. and rich of an experience you're going to have. Absolutely, it, it, it's mm-hmm. just a, a fun thing to see that that you don't necessarily get punished for making the wrong decision it, it just gives you a new bit of information in, in how to handle things the next time and maybe you go into you know a run where you know you end up doomed at some point soon because of the decisions you've made but you know in that run still you can make a difference um I've been playing only this last week uh, The Last Stand Aftermath which you know is like a roguelike that is um, a zombie survival thing where you play it as an infected survivor each time who in the short time left has to do as much as possible to help the community that are going to live you know and keep going and keep doing and then it makes the next person who comes along when that character inevitably dies it makes their job a little easier to know that oh now you've got a bigger supply base so they can take more stuff out with them when wow. they go out to do supply runs and stuff what a brilliant concept yeah I mean it's mm-hmm. defro it's for Canada, to Canada but in a more serious tone and a bit more fleshed out and it works perfectly and this is the sort of thing I like about it where it's like you take something away from it no matter what you do you're kind of helping the next one 
know, and that is the way you should do roguelites and roguelites all the time is there has to be something in each run that feels meaningful no matter how small and Mooncrash does that perfectly because it blends that immersive sim nature of it where you even if you're not doing something very physical in changing how you see the next run you might learn something in terms of the narrative that helps you you know and that's where it, it stands out and where it really does things that like Hades ended up taking where it starts telling its own story and that story is then important to how you continue to play and how you learn and progress and it, it, as we said that's how Deathloop ends up being you know, the ultimate version of that well I just love that in Mooncrash you're forced of course into a specific style of play even though it again the I guess that's not the right way to phrase that. Each class that you're going to play as, or each character role, has different strengths, obviously, and weaknesses, and it it pushes you into one play style, but the player still, of course, has total freedom to pursue this how they want. Obviously, it'll be much more difficult if you decide, oh, I'm going to try a build that is not in line with their inherent attributes and whatnot. Yeah. But what I loved between jumping between the core game of Prey and then Mooncrash was is that my time in Mooncrash started to influence my play style in the core game of yeah. Prey and whatnot, because it's like you get one person that is more powers heavy. So then all of a sudden I found myself when I went backwards, I'm going to lean more into powers because I see the benefit in that. Even if it is a more heightened version of Mooncrash, because you begin with stronger powers or with the more uh, uh, bigger side pool or whatnot. It just kind of like opened my eyes up maybe to a play style that I'm not inherently going to lean into. But I think that, Mooncrash does such a good job of presenting this wide swath of play styles in such a short period of time, depending on how successful you are, that it does influence you in opening your eyes up to the potential of, well, maybe I'll take a bit of that, I'll take a bit of that. And if anything, you know, I don't know if I would ever say play Mooncrash first, but I think that if you get through the first hour or hour and a half of Prey and then play a little bit of Mooncrash, it kind of, if anything, it feels like it's a way to experiment more without potentially impeding your uh, progress in Prey, right? You know, the, the ramifications maybe are not as uh, de- as uh, steep or whatnot. And I think that it just, it makes for this really great, you know, you, it's a simulation. So it's a great way for the player to simulate styles of play and potentially see how these things would react without maybe potentially kind of setting them back a ways in terms of their uh, progress and whatnot. But I guess now I want to give you guys a platform without us uh, going for another hour and 20 minutes, but just to <laughs> mention how Prey is the perfect precursor to uh, Deathloop just, and how they're... Sorry, just before we do that, I, 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 just, sure. I just want to mention that that wasn't the only expansion that Prey got. That's true. true. The other one was multiplayer, right? Yeah. uh, Typhon Hunter. Um, Mm -hmm. Multiplayer in one sense, but also it was a VR mode, which was like an escape Mm -hmm. experience, which was like really cool. I I really enjoyed that. Uh, It was like to be in that world in virtual reality, it was like, you know, I was really into, I really desired to sort of see that environment. Um, I mean, it's not much to it, but it's still interesting. The other game is basically like uh, prop hunt, effectively. You know, one one of you is Morgan, the rest of you are mitts, uh, and 
so yeah naturally it makes perfect sense that you play a game of prop pun and yeah so it's probably the most derivative part of prey you know in terms of uh, additional content but it is just it would genuinely perfect if you were going to have a multiplayer experience for prey that's what you do and, and i think you know while it's not as impactful as moon crash in terms of like adding the whole experience i think it, is, it definitely needed to be mentioned here because it has that and like i said the vr stuff is just fun to do and actually feel like you're in that world because you know Talos one is one of those things where i wish the whole game was in vr because <laughs> i just love to walk around that you know it, it feel like a minute it, because it makes such a difference you know and while it is, these are only like small snippets of that it was still like this nice extra step you know it's like it's like a nice sauce on on the on a really nice meal you know it, it just works and just makes the taste of it just that much better but yes beyond that jay sorry <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like in i guess in term i'm thinking of like other sci-fi horror games that have maybe tacked on might be the wrong way to describe a typhon hunter for prey but you know we've definitely seen it comes to mind like dead space 2 had a multiplayer mode that felt very tacked on that at the end of the day you're like what does this really add Mm. it sounds like that that at least anything that is more immersive into talos one can only be a good thing and i think that that's definitely an experience that i would like to uh to seek out in that regard if i ever get the chance to but i guess going back to death loop like how is death loop the perf- which I believe both of you were keen on. Yeah, Ooh. both of you enjoyed just, that. Just a bit. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Um, but how did Deathloop really take the best elements of Prey and evolve it into what is a game that you both have immensely enjoyed this year? To you, Aaron? I think, I think what I love about Deathloop is, uh, is just the way that, and again, this is the same thing with Mooncrash, um, repeating the same thing really is something that melds perfectly with the immersive sim because it's like so much about um, trying to find different ways to solve things, getting used to your environment. So whereas in moon crash, it almost added more consequences to have this roguelike structure in death loop. Sometimes it added less. It it made you feel free because like, Every once in a while, I would just be like, okay, I'm just going to try and see what's in this place. I don't care if I live or die, so I'm just going to go run in, get on the blazing. I don't have to spend, you know, 20 minutes kind of perfectly sneaking around the area and taking out people one by one. I'm just going to, I'm just going to take two, two semi-automatics and just start, start <laughs> making my way through this crowd and see what happens. Um, and, and that repetition is just so, so interesting the way that you you know you keep finding little pieces and figuring out how to move these pieces around or put pieces together and um, figure out what's different between the time periods and I just think it's all so so well structured and, and well designed and and frankly um, solves one like problem on the development side with immersive sims because sometimes uh, immersive sims can be a hard sell to to get developed because of the fact that there's so many resources put into things like you know you you're designing all these different paths both from an art standpoint a design standpoint everything you're designing all these different paths but so many players are just going to play through mm-hmm. once and only see like you know 25% of what was made and it's a hard and it's hard for you know a developer to say okay I'm going to make a game I'm going to that's you know and and I'm going to put all these resources into it but the players are only going to see 
this much of it. Um, and and to have it be in a place that you're going to be repeating over and over again um, makes it quote-unquote worth it, you know, because now you have um, players are going to be experimenting more, um, thoroughly exploring more, and it's it's just such a, an ingenious way uh, to evolve the formula and make it make it so much um, so much richer. Yeah, and I think a lot of the criticism that came into the fact that they kept showing the game off in trailers and things like that, it became its own little meme of like, uh, if PlayStation were having a showcase, then Deathloop showing up and probably taking up most of the time in favour of whatever people were clamouring for. But it needed it because even now, you know, its reputation gets dashed by people because they think of it in some way that it isn't you know there is a subset of people out there will, will have dim- dismissed that game now out of hand because like oh they showed too much they showed too much and it's like no they didn't they really didn't it's like the amount of times they showed that game off in those game tra- gameplay trailers and like those long 15 minute reveals none of it scratched the surface you know? it's like it really didn't but the idea was to sort of set you up for what the rules are of this world. And even then, it was like, it didn't really teach you because going into it, I was, I was so excited by the idea, but I was so worried that it'd be so intimidating to try and juggle all these things. Like, you know, the idea is you're supposed to kill all eight targets in a single day. That's your main objective. And to do that, just seems like oh, how the hell would I do it? How because you're thinking in terms of uh, like prey, yeah, you know, where it's just one world and you're always in it and time passes, blah blah blah. But no, they find the perfect compromise between prey and dishonored in terms of like they break it up into levels by having different times of day be different levels and each of those levels had their own rule sets and certain characters out at certain times, certain things that are accessible, some things are not and obviously again the more your abilities grow the the more that changes and it, it just becomes fascinating because it feels so wonderfully open in the way that Prey does whilst retaining Dishonored's you know more simplistic structure you know where you are just like this is a little sandbox for you to play around in but it affects the other sandboxes you're going to play in you have multiple sandboxes to play in that all connect in some way or another something you do in one sandbox will affect what happens in the later sandbox only in that run and back and forth back and forth you had this thing where you don't know what's going to happen and how your decisions are going to impact something later in that day of the loop. And yeah, the, therein lies the appeal. The, the moon crash aspect of it, where it's like you can set out a path for yourself for later in there that may not pay off this time, but it will pay off in future because you learn that little extra whether it be from a narrative standpoint or from a gameplay standpoint you know whether it be you pick up a, a certain ability or you learn a piece of information that might oh yeah this this could get me to this location at this time and set this thing up perfectly 
for later and you know prey is more flexible obviously and moon crash sort of makes it more of a puzzle and that's what Deathloop is Deathloop is a puzzle you know when it comes down to it it's like you are playing over and over again to figure out what order to put those puzzle pieces in and even then you have this structure that is like that solves the game so to speak even then there is flexibility within those puzzle pieces to do things the way you want to do them so you don't feel like you're being driven down a path it's like you know what you have to do but you don't have to do it in any particular way you just know you have to do certain things at certain times of day to make it work Hmm. and so yeah it takes the idea you know it gives you the focus of saying this is what you must do and just gives you this whole wide world of ideas in which to come to that conclusion, you know, to the conclusion that works. And yeah, so it's like, it just makes everything Arcane have done up to this point into this big smorgasbord that is just fantastic. And just, it, it feels wrong to make this sound like it's something less it's like any other game it's like it, it really does just have such depth to every little aspect of piecing together this uh, you could explain how each part goes together to someone and it would sound so simple but it's like that's explaining it doing it is such a different thing you it feels so satisfying you feel like you're piecing together a mystery you know like you really do feel like you are solving a mystery in itself whilst learning and because Colt is an amnesiac uh, in the early going of the game um, you're learning at the same time you know you are as oblivious as he is and you're both learning on the job so to speak you know when things come into play which means he learns and keeps hold of information just as the player does it's yeah Deathloop is fantastic and is the basic takeaway from this. And again, it, to me also, it brings in some things that I love about Hitman mm. again. Um, is that like, it's like you have like these little clockwork worlds that are like, you know, kind of running on their own, their own little yes. logic. And you have to just kind of um, figure out ways to peek in and see how, how the gears are turning and then figure out where you can, you know, jam your wrench in and, and, break it all down um and it's just so it's so um rewarding to do stuff like that and it's and like and it's also as you're trying to research and figure out what's going on and how you can best break things down or or that sort of stuff that's when you're also doing all the like cool immersive sim um like learning about the the level or learning about the environment the world the characters um you know it's that that's where that's where that immersive sim stuff really pays off too, because you're while you're doing this gameplay thing of trying to figure out how to kill everybody yeah. in this this specific order, you're also learning about them, and you're learning, you know, about how their personal lives are, or you know, you're learning that they're how how shitty of people <laughs> they are in 
you know, in whatever they're doing in experiments, but then also you see little human sides of them, like, you know, when you find two of them are in, like, a secret relationship and trying to, you know, run off and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's so interesting to, 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 again, melding gameplay and, and story in a, in an interesting way where as you're trying to complete the mechanical objectives, you're rewarded these little pieces of story and pieces of world building and pieces of lore and yeah, stuff like that. I think- we go back to what we were saying before about you know, how there are going to be people who play certain kinds of games that expect a spoon-fed story, you know, and to be given everything and will believe that anything they're meant to find is like some sort of, oh, I found this thing I never would have known otherwise like that. It's like, no, the game meant you to find it. You know, that's part and parcel. Mm-hmm. Here it is very much like you are, the end is never really the point. You know, same with, you know, as much as Prey has this, you know, big final twist to it, you know, it, it's still mm. the point isn't that, you know, it's like it makes it more meaningful with uh, subsequent playthroughs and makes Mooncrash work, you know, as well. Uh, because it suddenly becomes almost meta, you know, in, in terms of how it does it. But these games just don't need that they don't need to be about the story in that sense it's not about having an end you are living in a world that is it you know you are living in a situation it's not about happy ever afters or doom gloom endings necessarily it's just about experiencing a world as best it can be represented and you know our game just happened to be very very good at making these worlds that feel very rich well to bring it back to what Aaron said uh, at the beginning of the episode right the idea that ultimately Arcane seems to be best at crafting worlds where ultimately the narrative that the player is creating in each run through Mm. is going to be more interesting long term than the narrative that is holding up the framework of everything not to say that the narrative that is holding everything together isn't doing an adequate job of that but at the same time it's more about allowing the gameplay that facilitates the player creating their own sort of like anecdotal narratives throughout. And I think that that's a testament to them being able to do that from a gameplay perspective for 10 plus hour experiences, which their games usually run, right? I mean, there are a lot of games that we've played where it's like, if these games did not have story beats that had these drawn out cutscenes or whatnot, or just fully fleshed out, it feels like you're watching a movie do some of those experiences need to be 10 to 15 hours long, right? It kind of yeah. feels like, well, if they didn't have those, does is the gameplay going to be able to kind of carry that weight? The answer for that is probably no for a good deal of games like <laughs> that. But at the end of the day, I think Arcane does a really good job and it speaks to the replayability of their games. Granted, I haven't played Deathloop, but at the same time, it speaks to this idea that you could, and I assume you feel the same way about this game, like it's very replayable in yeah. that the player's given that much choice. There's that many variables. There's that many different uh, outcomes, per se, for each type of uh, hit or assassination or whatnot. And I think that especially with, obviously, from what I've played of their games, Dishonored and played in Prey and whatnot, that's not something that I can pl- say about a lot of games. And, you know, the older I get, this is something that I've brought up a couple of times on the show already, but... I don't replay a great deal of games just because I have this finite amount of time. I want to play as many things as I can and try to stay as relevant as one can. Um, But at the same time, I don't go back and replay a lot of things like I used to when I was a kid. And yet 
This is the fourth or fifth time that I've played through Prey now, and it is not just to experience this section or little moments that I remember from the past playthroughs. It's more about what more can I get out of this? Mm. It's really just like straining as many experiences out of the variables that are presented as possible in a way that, again, I don't know how many games I could say that. Like if I go back and replay Bioshock, I'm not replaying that because like, oh yeah, I want to try out some, like there's only so many combinations of whether it be combat, uh, offensive or defensive capabilities and things like that. The, the variable set is much more restricted and that's not, you can't compare a game like that to prey in terms of just thinking about when they were released and the true, the intention behind them and whatnot. But it just goes to show, like, if I was to replay Bioshock, it's more about the story. It's more about specific character interactions, things like that. It might not necessarily be because of the gameplay. Whereas Prey, now I've probably sunk, uh, I'm probably close to 100 hours into this game already, and I could potentially sink another 20 into Moon Crash or something like that. And I think that that is very telling in terms of just Arcane's focus with games and their drive and the types of games they want to make. And they know what they excel at. And to see them pursue the specific variables that they are so prominent at excelling at is exciting. And it makes me excited for something like Redfall, which, you know, Prey has obviously horror elements in it, but Redfall is probably their most horror-centric game in terms of the last three or four projects that they've done. I guess, what are your sort of expectations or I guess we know so little about the game I guess Aaron for you what is an element of Redfall that you really hope to see be representative of Arcane's continuing with what they do so well but maybe how they could potentially evolve on that in a more multiplayer focused uh, game well obviously with like you know it it seems like there's going to be multiple characters that you can choose Um, so you know that again right right off the bat kind of puts you in that wonderful wheelhouse of all these different options that you have for combat and that sort of stuff um and just from the one you know cinematic trailer that they had it seemed like all of them are pretty significantly yeah. different um as far as play styles go and again like we were talking about how sometimes what's coolest about these is these little stories that you end up telling um on your own through the emergent gameplay that happens um that's often sometimes what is the most appealing part about co-op yes. games is like, you know, you're playing something like Back for Blood and you guys all, you know, you got your crew of four and you all tell that you always are uh, reminiscing about the story of when one guy took the wrong turn and got left on the boat and everyone was just like, just leave me, just leave me. <laughs> and then the bomb goes off and, it, and you know, he, he gets left in the dust. So um, having having something where, you know, the gameplay is... is um, you know, has all these emergent elements that allow you to tell your own stories, and then also having that that co-op element that's going to add even more um, types of interactions to that is is really going to be something something cool. And I'm not a huge person into co-op games, and I am absolutely ready to try and find three other people to <laughs> go well, through this with. I'll be one of them. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, you know, first of all, again, they've picked something that I'm a sucker for, which is vampires. And, you know, it is Arcane Austin, you know, the studio that made Prey. So I'm very intrigued. Obviously, they're lacking now Rafael Colantonio because he left after Prey, mainly because of making games like this, really, that was not his jam. But 
I still think there's enough there with the people that are there to maybe make a really interesting take on multiplayer. And we're going to bring up Game Pass again here, but it's going to be important. It really is. I, I think this is the one time Arcane making this kind of game, it will work for them. We, we've heard it this last week, you know, that uh, Forza Horizon 5 you know, had like 10 million players because it was on Game Pass. You know, it's like, so while on the same level, you can imagine Redfall is going to do some decent numbers compared to most Arcane titles because it's there. It's available for everyone to try. And as we discussed earlier, you know, with the demo, it's like you really need to get into an arcane game to understand it and appreciate it the way it should be appreciated. And I, I imagine it will be very much the same with Redfall. And yeah, already from what we've seen on it, it's intriguing and I, 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 I'm so fascinated to see what lessons they've taken from Prey and Prey Moon Crash uh, and applied here to an actual full-on multiplayer game because Arkane do something that Rockstar do very well I think when they're at their best which is each game feels like it is an actual step to the next game there's something in that game that will add like Max Payne 3 in Rockstar's case uh, added the social club stuff and the multiplayer stuff and like, added personality to multiplayer that ended up being in GTA 5 and made GTA 5 the behemoth it is you know like that and in Arcane's case you know like Mooncrash had its influence on Deathloop whether they say so or not and Deathloop had multiplayer which yeah, I'm, doesn't get talked about enough I think is is so phenomenal in replacing that you know, praise uh, nightmare moonshark aesthetic by actually having another player or the AR be the antagonist to your play and but the smart thing in that is that if it is another player you don't even have to be the antagonist you can help. You can help the other player. I mean, getting people to trust you is another thing altogether, but you, you can take out targets for someone. All that, it's amazing. So I'm fascinated to see where the next step in multiplayer is for them. And I think Redfall is, could be something really special. And having the security blanket of Microsoft and their, you know, infinite pit of money means that maybe they can take a few more risks and, and do something a bit more ambitious and, it, and they have the support to make it work and that that to me is the most exciting thing about all this I never would have thought this a few years ago that Arcane being in the hands of Microsoft would be a bad uh, you know a bad thing or a good thing it, it, it really does seem like a good thing because they will let them do what they need to do and they have the money to take the hit if it doesn't go well. And I don't think they'll punish Arcane for it going badly if it did go badly. I think they let it live 
you just have to see see a feed to see that you know that they will just let a studio keep trying until they get it right one thing that i found really interesting just just kind of realized this now looking at both Deathloop and and what we've seen of Redfall so far is that both of these um you know from the their respective studios um their respective are whatever version of arcane they're coming from um they both like Deathloop and Redfall both just seem to be a lot more yeah. playful than than previous and I think that's that's a fun a fun evolution because like sometimes maybe part of what I didn't get into with death with Dishonored is that it was kind of like pretty grim yes. and serious all mm-hmm. the time um and and then when you do something like Deathloop is a lot more whimsical and playful and that sort of stuff um and Prey again is pretty serious but has its moments of, of being pretty funny um but but again this this Redfall seems to be a lot more whimsical and playful and I think that's that um makes it a lot more opening and accepting for players who are usually kind of scared off by the more um systems heavy type yeah. of gameplay that they're usually more making. accessible um, so i think yeah i think that's a really cool evolution for the studios absolutely and i guess and neil's also mentioning game pass i think that it would be really obviously going to everything wanting a developer to see success with a game that merits it but it would be really phenomenal to see this game really thrive on game pass and it being given the level of attention that something like Prey didn't receive until a year or so after it was actually released. It would be so fantastic to see them deliver on this premise and show an evolution on what they've been doing and also sort of adhering to some of the staples or the depth of their games, but make it more accessible, maybe more welcoming to gamers that are not maybe steered towards hardcore games, but at the same time, it having that depth underneath the surface of that, and then having that expansive player base day one. I mean, that would be really fantastic to see them kind of be have a project greeted with. And you know, Deathloop again was is been making people's games a year list, and not to say it's not a critical success, but again, like it's uh, exclusivity and whatnot. Not everybody has been able to play it and stuff like that, and so. To see a game that would be day one have such a large player base, and this is all granted that it delivers on what it promises and whatnot, that would just be refreshing to see, I think. And that kind of highlights one of the elements of that player base that a good portion of them, maybe if it wasn't on Game Pass, they're like, well, maybe I'm not going to take a risk on this multiplayer game from a studio that in the past I haven't been necessarily in love with. And, you know, you think about something like Back for Blood that came out on Game Pass, and it's like, well, that has the lineage of Left 4 Dead and whatnot. So it already, whether or not it was going to be on Game Pass, it would have that an audience of a sizable portion. Yeah. With something like Redfall, I mean, what does that mean to people that are not hardcore gamers or people that aren't fans of Arcane or not familiar with them and whatnot? They're kind of like, well, why would I take a risk, sixty to seventy dollar risk on that? Whereas it being on Game Pass, they're willing to take that risk, and so long as it delivers. It would be fantastic to see yeah. it have this fan base that can propel it and give them the sort of clout that you would have hoped that they would have gotten out the gate with something like Prey or even the original Dishonored, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I really hope that doesn't just impact if Redfall does happen to cut out of platforms, that it's not just going to be a case of like, you know, people just disowning the idea of it because it's now an xbox you know thing but 
you kind of see it. Uh, it always seems to be an obstacle in Arcane's way. You know, like, Dishonored as beloved as, as it was, still wasn't like you know, a massive seller. I mean, it would pray as you know, it was a mixed sort of uh, review ratings and stuff because of technical problems, but. Not to say it didn't. It, it had a good couple of weeks when it came out, and then after that, it sank like a stone. So it, you know, you worry. You worry in that sense, but I think because it's Microsoft and because they will willingly take a hit on stuff, and they now, I think if you said a few years ago, maybe they just bail out with the whole thing and say no no we'll, we'll, we'll let this die this die this die. now I think they just let developers do what they want to do and do it right and it, it's becoming increasingly true uh, you only have to look at the stuff they put out this year that they're doing that you know they're not following a safe path because they can afford not to uh, They, unlike Sony who kind of have to drastically rely on their big games being big safe sellers you know which is ironic because Sony's you know re-emergence with the PlayStation brand came from them doing something new you know here you know Microsoft are now at the case of like they are that company they are the company that can say yeah we'll just let our developers do what the fuck they want and like if it doesn't make bank it doesn't matter because we're selling game pass we're selling game pass somewhere down the line that might be a problem as we've said before right now I think it's hugely beneficial to someone like that game absolutely yeah but uh, we'll have to wait and see but I think that we're all uh, we're all eager to see how they're able to kind of build upon their philosophy and their uh, what they've excelled at for so long in their game development and apply it to what seems like uncharted territory yeah. in a lot of ways for them, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. But if anything, uh, what people should take away from this is go play Moon Crash because as somebody that just got to play that for <laughs> yeah. the first time, I am uh, could not wait to dive back into it. Maybe as soon as uh, we're done recording. Yeah, but, I mean, like uh, talking the whole way through this, I was like, I want to go back and play Prey. I just, I just want to play Prey. <laughs> it, like, it, it just, yeah, it's, it's like visiting a place on holiday that you really really love and you just want to keep going back because you had that first memory of it and you just want to be back in that memory you know and that's what prey is it, it just as an environment more than like i said more than any other arcane game i just want to go back to talos one and wander around it and i would love nothing more than if technology evolved enough that we could have a VR version of Prey where fuck the monsters, fuck whatever. You just walk around <laughs> Talos 1 and you get to space walk outside of it and just, it would just be the best thing ever. I would just, I would live in that. Want to pick up those resource Yeah, <laughs> I, I, just, I just want to live in that world. You know, it's like I, as dangerous and as awful as it would be, I, I want to be in the Google Space Station. No, I want to be there. <laughs> no, I, I want to look around that aesthetic. It just... It's rare in a game that I feel like that, but that is one of those games where I'm just like, I need to be in this world. I, I need to be here because it's 
feels so right and real. And I think the fact that they had architects help make that world and make it consistent and believable is such a big factor in that. That, you know, as much as I would, you know, I would you know, hold my hands up and say, okay, I love Prey. I will admit that there are aspects of it that make it lesser than maybe Dishonored 2 or Deathloop. But in terms of game world, it's class of its own, you know, is the best. You know, I, I just, I love that game world so, so much. I, I, and the fact, I think the biggest thing about it is, even though it isn't like, as they say in the No Clip documentary, even though it isn't like one to one accurate on the outside, the fact that you can go outside of it and just sort of reach each point that you've been before from the outside and spacewalk it, it's just mind blowing. It doesn't feel like it should be possible. And like even learning that, you know, that's like, okay, we had to make these conversations like, you know, if we'd done it for real, it would have been, you know, this area would have been at a 45 degree angle. And so we didn't do that. I was like, I don't care. That's, that's beyond my comprehension, you know, in terms of going into a game world. It just feels like I'm here and I'm happy and I'd love to keep going there, you know? And yeah, what more can you say? It's just a staggering work of art in that regard. Basically, Neil wants to holiday in a space station with a uh, alien infestation. I'm glad we got to the root of that. Yeah, (laughs) it's never changed. (laughs) But uh, I think we all do. I need to give a shout out before we wrap up. uh, To everybody should definitely go check out the No Clip documentary Mm -hmm. uh, done by Danny O'Dwyer, which is a fantastic representation of his work as well, just in terms of like how thorough it is and all the elements of it. And it's a documentary that, you know, as soon as you watch it, if you're familiar with Prey, it'll make you want to dive right back into it for many of the reasons that we've highlighted here. But uh, Aaron, we got to thank you especially for uh, giving us your time once again to chat games and horror for uh, safe room. So thank you again for your time. Yeah, no problem. And it's funny. Um, it actually took me this whole time sitting here recording to remember that I actually have a prey poster oh. on my wall oh. right next to me. <laughs> Very um, cool. I got, uh, there was, I, I live in Austin, mm. Texas and um, the, there's a local theater chain around here, the uh, Elmo Draft House, yeah. and they they partnered with they partnered with Bethesda to oh. do a film series for um, like the inspirations of Prey um, before the game oh, came very out. Very cool. So they were doing screenings of like Moon, uh, The Matrix. I think maybe RoboCop was another one. Um, but I, I was like, well, I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to see the matrix on the big screen. Um, and I went and they were just giving out like full size posters oh, of prey cool. for free. Um, so I've, I've had that, uh, ever since. Very cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But thank you again. This was uh, a pleasure to further pick your brain about prey a game that, uh, more people need to play, but I'm glad that we were able to, uh, to chat about it for as long as we did. So thanks again, man. Always glad to talk. Thank you for listening to another episode of safe room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.